0: First Kings 19, there is Elijah collapsed under a juniper tree, which seems to be a depressive state. And uh, what we describe under this big umbrella term of uh, depression has a long ancestry. It goes back to Cain and Jonah and some of the psalmists. And then you have uh, Paul describing Christians as being downcast. Our bodies had no rest. We were troubled on every side, outside were conflicts, inside were fears, the downcast. The Puritans were well aware of that condition, and there is then, in the late Peter Lewis's book called The Genius of Puritan, in the last 35, 40 pages, he gathers together the insights that they had, Um, Thomas Boston, Christopher Love, Richard Baxter especially, And you know, um, the book um, that the banner has brought out, The Lifting Up of the Downcast, and this was first published in a paperback uh, 60 years ago, and it's gone through seven reprints. And they had to deal as pastors with depressed states in their congregation. They were physicians of the souls. They were ministering to the affections as well as the intellects of their people. And their writings were born out of the reality they had of knowing people and knowing their own hearts. So let me start negatively. What depression is not, point one. Um, What did the Puritans dismiss as wrongly diagnosed as depression. And I want to make five observations then. Firstly, not all the sorrow a Christian knows can be dubbed depression. Not all the pressures and burdens that Paul informs us that he and his fellow laborers knew can be called depression. Much sadness is perfectly wholesome and normal. The Christian knows much of the tragedy of human life. He's aware of the sadness in his own kith and kin, the griefs that have come into their lives. We meet a stranger, we sit on a plane, and then they open up when they discover I'm a a pastor, and they tell us um, about the private sorrows that they have gone through. It's a groaning world. Secondly... There's a certain essential solemnity about the Christian because we have to live our lives in a fallen world. And we know the evil influence of remaining sin. We know our own egos. And that means that Christian joy in the Lord is never nonchalance. It never becomes superficial merriment. The problems are too deep. The activities of the God of this world are too devastating. A Christian's emotional state is informed and structured by such an awareness. And so every Christian is characterized by a certain seriousness, a gravity of bearing and deportment before God. Thirdly, it is prescriptive for a Christian that throughout his life, he is characterized as sorrowing for his sin for the evil that he would not that he does, and his sins of omission, the good that he should do, but he doesn't do. You think of the Sermon on the Mount, that immensely logical and comprehensive description of the human life, and it begins with those Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. The Christian is someone who is discontented with the standards that he sets for himself. He knows that in many points he violates the wishes of his Savior. He's a man of genuine sorrow. And he looks at his family and his daughters-in-law and sons-in-law and his church, his fellow members, the community, the people who live on his street. And the Spirit of God is illuminating his mind Convicting him of sin and righteousness and judgment. He knows a grief. He knows an awareness that he failed his Savior who suffered and gave his life for him. And it's no advance in maturity or in progressive sanctification. If that sadness is demeaned or rebuked or mortified or we seek to expel it from our lives... That grief is an essential part of godliness. Fourthly, it is perfectly proper that when a Christian suffers the bereavement of a family member, that he has an enormous sense of loss. Half of him has died. I remember a day after the funeral of my first wife. um, I wasn't going to spend the weekend alone. I drove 100 miles to my youngest daughter, to spend the weekend with her. And as I was crossing the Welsh mountains, I realised this passenger seat, (laughs) that it always had, Yola, she would never sit in it again. And I howled. And then half an hour later, I howled again. I'm happily married now to an old friend. (laughs) So, such sadness is not called depression by the Puritans. Perfectly normal. Absolutely essential. We encourage those in our fellowship who've lost loved ones, who choke up, and then they say, oh, sorry. Don't be sorry. Don't be sorry. It's a mark of your love. Uh, We sorrow not as those Not as those who have no hope. Because their loved ones have been annihilated in their view. And soon they will be annihilated too. And it's a hopeless life. A long day's journey into nothingness. And that's not our grief as Christians. Um, The disciples of the Lord die in hope. Um, It's not... Not that grief is wrong, but hopeless grief is wrong. When Stephen was murdered, the people who saw him and had been blessed under his ministry and saw the horrible murder of him at the end, they made great lamentation over him. And this brilliant man with such a future, they took his body away and buried it. The Holy Spirit stamps his authority on their tears. Jesus Christ was loved by two grieving sisters because uh, their brother had died. And Jesus weeps too. He doesn't confront Mary and Martha and say, Come on now, stiff upper lip. You, you are believers in God. <laughs> Don't become stoics. It's perfectly proper and quite essential for Christians to fill up. Fifthly, the Puritans said it's perfectly proper for our souls to bend under the stresses of seeking to live a Christ-like life. I'm talking about the trials of being a Christian in a world that doesn't know us because it doesn't know our God. If we condemn all sadness of Christians, then how do, we, how, how do you view your Savior, who is called the man of sorrows? who was personally acquainted with grief. In other words, it wasn't exceptional for him to break his heart. He didn't attempt to hide this. He didn't go in a corner to cry. Um, he wept over Jerusalem's recalcitrance to repent. He'd stretch his wings out over them and protect them. But I would, but you would not. Here is God's great definition of a man. Here is what Luther called the proper man. And yet in Gethsemane, he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he says to them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. And there are times when that hits us, when we are overwhelmed by our follies. It's sad if you're not troubled if you're not distressed that's not being depressed then distressed is different from being depressed um there are times the psalmist speaks of when he says iniquities against me prevail from day to day um we are confronted with a situation of hardened unbelief in people that we love. And we are, we are thinking of them and talking to them maybe. And then uh, we hear the phone rings and someone, they've got cancer. And uh, they've got a lengthy operation. And we, we weep with them. A heaviness grips us. Our spirits creak. There's a book in the Bible, it's called, one of the 66 is called, Lamentations. It is not called depression. It must not be called depression. There's a place for lamentation. There's not a place for depression. When the apostle was given a thorn in the flesh, the activity of Satan's messenger to keep him humble and keep him usable, Paul didn't fake that he was nonchalant about it. Well, praise the Lord anyway. He had three seasons of prayer. He focused on this thorn in the flesh. He described to God all the benefits he would have if he would only take that thorn in the flesh away from him. How he could evangelize more and write more and counsel more and so on. How advantageous it would be. But the only answer that the Lord gave him was that he had a good reason to let it remain. I'll help you to do what my will is for your life, and I'll, I'll bring in these factors. I'll bring in a thorn in the flesh to make you more usable. Then I can use you more. I want letters to the Romans and the Ephesians and the Colossians. And there's a, a church in Los Angeles in 2,000 years' time. And you, you're going to need it. And I I want you to read. I want you to write. And I'll use the thorn in the flesh that you'll write just what I want you So here we are. I've begun by saying what the Puritans thought of this whole matter of depression. And they didn't discover all times of prolonged heaviness or periods of downcast as times of depression. They didn't see a serious disposition as a depressed state. Or long grief at the death of a family member. Or Christian sorrow for yielding to temptation. Or bending under the stresses or just walking with the Lord day by day. That wasn't depression. They saw that as natural Christian responses to providence. Secondly then, what the Puritans judged to be the marks of depression. They didn't see it as more exaggerated or prolonged forms of grief or deeper conviction or sorrow for their sins. They analyzed it in these ways. Firstly, depression is something persistent. It isn't something that comes over you. You have a little sleep and you feel better. You deal with some social and emotional problems respectfully. And the days go by and it's lifted. Depression is a more concentrated and more persistent dejection. It goes on and on, far longer than the thing that triggered it off. The depressing catalyst is way behind. The depression itself remains. It is natural for the heart to break in bereavement. It is not normal for Queen Victoria, as a professing Christian, to dress in black for the next 40 years. And the curtains are drawn in the royal residences and peep people walk around on tiptoe. Year after year, shh, the queen is in mourning. It happened decades earlier. She paraded her grief to the whole world. World. The human spirit is not meant to go on like that. In Korean Christian circles, if a man's wife dies, he's encouraged to wait 10 years before he marries again. Why? Why such a long period of mourning? Why such a sentence to loneliness? It is not good for a man to be alone. It encourages vulnerability to temptation. You know the Longer Catechism as it uh, expounds uh, the seventh commandment. It speaks against long engagements. Not good, it says. So the Puritans considered an inordinate length of time with a heavy spirit. Over something that God has permitted to come into their lives, they consider that to be a mark of depression. Secondly, depression is immoderate; it is out of all proportion to what triggered it off. It is sorrowing without hope. You 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 noticed it. You've all noticed this song. Huh? You go through the blues and it's it's quite trivial what's caused it. I've raised the example of Elijah. The problems facing him were not immense. He'd been on Carmel, facing hundreds of screaming, bleeding, dancing prophets. He didn't panic, and he was all alone. He cried to God. God answered him with fire. Sacrifice was consumed. The multitude of The Israelites there danced with joy. The Lord, he is God. Jehovah, he is God, they said. And the prophets of Baal were all put to the sword. But when Queen Jezebel heard this, she said, I'll get you. And he does a runner out of the land into the wilderness, runs and runs until he falls exhausted under a juniper tree. Longing for death. Lord, take away my life. I'm no better than my father's. It was an immoderate reaction. And God is not sympathizing. God doesn't come, the Lord doesn't come near him and says, Ah, ah, oh, Elijah, there, there. It's not like that. God challenges. What are you doing here, Elijah. And depression is something paramount and terminal. There is nothing in Elijah's behavior commensurate with the threat of an angry woman. But I know many preachers who come to me have panicked at the explosion of a certain woman in their congregations. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you a story of... My, my great hero and friend, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was preaching in the 1930s or 1920s, preaching in a little country church, and the elders came on to him, and they said, I wonder, would you come with us and talk to the village school teacher? He's um, He was one of our strong members, and taught in the Sunday school, and After the war, oh, it's been hopeless. Um, He's just useless. He's got into a very sad condition. What's the matter with him, I said. He's got into some sort of depressive condition. He complains of headaches and pains in his stomach. Would you be good enough to see him? Sure, the doctor said. After he'd had his tea, this man came to see him. You look depressed, I said to him. He was like the men on the road to Emmaus. One glance at this man told me all about him. a typical face and attitude of a man who's depressed. I said, now you tell me, what's the trouble? Oh, I get these headaches. I never free from them. I wake up with one in the morning. I can't sleep too well. I get gastric pains. Tell me, how long has it been like this? Well, it's gone on for years, um, It's gone on since 1915. Oh, I'd be interested, the doctor said. How how did it begin? Well, the war broke out in 1914. I volunteered early on. I went into the Navy. I was transferred to a submarine and was sent to the Mediterranean. Now, the part of the Navy I belonged to was involved in the Gallipoli Campaign, and I was there in this submarine in the Mediterranean during that campaign. And one afternoon, we were engaged in action. We were submerged in the sea. We were all doing our duties when there was a terrible thud. And our submarine shook. It was hit a mine. Down we sank to the bottom of the Mediterranean. I've never been the same man since. Well, tell me more, Dr. Lloyd-Jones said. Tell me more. There's nothing really... More to say, the man said. and tell you how it's been since that happened to me in the Mediterranean. But I want to hear more. I want to hear the remainder of the story. I've told you the whole story. That went on for a while. I'd like to hear the whole story start at the beginning. And he told me how we volunteered and joined the Navy, went to submarine in the Mediterranean. That afternoon they were on maneuvers and... They were at the bottom of the Mediterranean. It's been like that ever since. Tell me the rest of the story. (laughs) He went through it all again and came to this dramatic afternoon. Thud. The shaking of the submarine. Down we went to the bottom of the night. There's nothing more to be said. (laughs) Are you still at the bottom of the Mediterranean? (laughs) Physically, he was not. Mentally, he was. And he'd remained at the bottom of the Mediterranean. That's your whole trouble. All your troubles are due to the fact that in your mind, you're there at the bottom of the Mediterranean. Tell me what happened. They radioed to a boat and it let down horses and they pulled the submarine up or you went through the escape mechanism and you all bobbed to the surface and you came home and were treated in in England and why didn't you tell me all that you stopped down at the bottom of the Mediterranean that's why the man was so depressed and the doctor says I'm happy to be able to tell you that as a result of this explanation that man was perfectly restored resumed his duties in the church and he became ordained in the Anglican church. All right. Depression is acute and intense. Thirdly, depression is paralyzing. And that's the problem with many, though you know, and maybe you too, a certain problem has altered our perspective and it's altered our values as to what is really important we've allowed ourselves to be immersed in what's happened to us so we've marginalized all the glory of redemption in Jesus Christ the greatness of his salvation the blessedness of being pure in heart and able to seek God now you see nothing now but ah, that bad providence and that's leads to Constant feelings of dejection. We've turned against the God who loves us, the God who meets all our needs, the God who works all things together for our good, the God who never leaves us. we become separate from what is life, an everlasting love, and we are there, inert, doing nothing. A bleak spirit a spirit of unbelief, a spirit of depression. It destroys people. It takes away your motivation from being abounding in the work of the Lord. Elijah never followed up the triumph of Mount Carmel. He never consolidated the gains of victory. He never motivated people to go through the Holy Land and and go to the high places where they built their altars and shrines and chop them down well what about you now is there some sorrow some great disappointment and it's cara brought a a shadow of inertia over your life and you're lying down under a juniper tree, and you've taken yourself away from the battle you once could be a hewer of wood and a drawer of water that you would give to christ but not now maybe covid came and it was an excuse for you not to meet any longer and now there's a sunday pattern in which you sit in your favorite armchair and switch on to listen to your favorite preacher The energy, the output, all gone. You become a spectator. We're paralyzed, living on the fringes, under a juniper tree. Maybe you found other people, and they all bring their juniper trees to church on a Sunday. (laughs) And they sit in a little grove. Not much enthusiastic singing from this quiet corner of the congregation because they're all rather depressed. Depression is persistent, it's immoderate, and it is paralyzing. Fourthly, it shows itself in self-destructive thoughts. Here's Elijah. My fathers were failures, and I'm a failure too. And he's lost any desire to go on living. Oh, I hope that's very far. Oh, I hope I hope none of you is thinking like this, self-harming. The devil has sent uh, a fiery dart at you, and he says, "Kill yourself." It came from hell. You came from hell. You brushed it aside. Thou shalt not kill. Feelings of self-destruction, it it just erupts at these times. And you know when people talk, if it's a throwaway remark, my, we pay attention. We pastors pay, we elders, we pay attention. We take it very seriously. Um, We treat depressed people with much kindness and much patience. Like kissing, gentle but firm, That's how we treat people. We neglect 50 other people in the congregation. They all want us to call and see them. We're there at that time in these people's lives, day after day, sitting, listening, encouraging them, seeking to lift them up. Fifthly, depression is self-deprecating. This man, Elijah, you could say he, he's the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. When on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, God sends from heaven the representative of the law, he sends Moses. And when he sends the representative of the prophets, he sends Elijah. This man of such charismatic gifts, this man of who's known such blessing. And now he is feeling totally useless. He's looking back, and his conclusion is, we've all been failures, like father, like son. And there's a point when self-depreciation is not humility. It is a destructive denial and repudiation of what God, in his mercy to you, in his loving kindness towards you, has done in saving you from hell and working all things together for your good and never leaving you and blessing you multitudes of ways. And you see it. You see it everywhere. Oh, what am I? What are we other preachers? They're so wonderful. We watch them online. But with us, what have we ever done? And we lose confidence in our In our worthiness, in our gifts, in the call of God to be preachers of the gospel. Our persistence, our self-belief has been destroyed. And someone says, well, it's a very humble spirit. (laughs) It is not a humble spirit. My status is, I am the Son of God. I am a joint heir. Everything that Jesus deserves, I also inherit. Because I'm in him and I'm with him. And I can go to the maker of the universe and say, Abba, Father, to him. And the gifts I have, they're all from him. He's entrusted them to me. And I must say to myself, You're not nothing. You're not. You've been loved with an everlasting love. And my task as a pastor then is to make this uh, poor man take pride in his high position. Not by saying you really are wonderful and so on. Do you know Bill God chose you before the foundation of the world. And he gave you to his son, and you're going to heaven, and he's worked all things together for your good. Do you know this, Bill? Do you know that nothing's going to separate you from the love of God? I know you've only got a dog. <laughs> uh, and, and, and you've retired from the, the little work you did now, cleaning the streets. God is your father and loves you so, so deeply. Love so amazing, so divine, demands we change. We give him again our life, our soul. We rededicate, often to him, reconsecrate, often. Here I am, Lord, sorry, I've I've been down a bit. Sixthly, depression can result... In self-neglect, our routines break down. Sleep, diet becomes impaired, social interaction. Where is he? Where is Elijah? Is he home with his wife? (laughs) He's in a cave. He's under a tree. (laughs) This great man, worthlessness. And despair causes a shutdown in functioning. He's, he lacks any, any love for himself. Any care? Love your neighbors as you love yourself. look after yourself. Maybe he starts maybe people start to hoard, they become rigid, they become inflexible about changing their behavior. and they, 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 they need care. A pastor will say, I think you want to go to the doctor. I'll call your doctor. I'm concerned about you. And some social workers, they come, and they make sure he's taking his tablets every day, and they clean him up and just help him in every way about hygiene. And the challenge is to, to get this depressed Christian, to get external help. To gain trust, to build a relationship. You know, trust is crucial, and that we cultivate. The sheep trust the shepherd. He feeds them, he leads them green pastures. They trust you. They trust you as leaders in the church. So, I'm, what I've said to you so far, depression isn't simply serious-mindedness and gravity. It is weakness. It is self-deprecating. It is self-neglecting. It dishonors God, as Elijah was here. And yet we see it, don't we? We see it around us. My third point, how the Puritans responded to this kind of depression. And I can take my life in my hands now. The Putins had such people in their congregations, in their pastoring, and they looked at them and they thought about them. What categories did they put them in? They weren't aware of modern psychiatric advances. They weren't aware of mood-changing drugs. But they did have God-breathed scriptures. And these were living they, they they had life the life of heaven was in them and they were powerful and they could make people capable of of doing every good work that god had planned for them that that they would be enabled to cope with any providence that God brought into their lives. They would never be able to say to God in the day of judgment, "Um, you didn't give me enough to cope. God said, didn't I give you the indwelling spirit and illimitable access to him? Didn't I give you the word of God, which is alive and powerful? Didn't I give you these things? Didn't I give you friends who prayed for you and loved you? Didn't I? What's the biblical attitude to depression? That's the $64,000 question. And they came to the conclusion that it, it was wrong. They recognized it was sad. A condition to be pitied with that depression, as I've analyzed it now, as I've explained it to you, is wrong. And every depressed Christian will say amen to that. They will. They say, Oh, I shouldn't be like this. As a redeemed Christian, as someone going to heaven, God, my heavenly Father, supplying all my needs, <laughs> how can I be depressed? Now, there are certain qualifications, all right. We know the bizarre and painful condition of postnatal depression and it takes time for a new mother to put her life back together This some hormonal imbalance we recommend to some people that we're talking to say, I think it would be a good thing for you to go and chat to your doctor about this we, we say that us as ministers but we're not talking about these things alright um, the reality of struggles that some Christians experience. And we seek to be as compassionate and patient as possible when people suffer grievous losses. And then you might have had an abusive parent or great disappointments in your life and loneliness, battles with ill health, and so on. And there's a certain cloud of melancholy that's just over your head and the the Puritans were very aware of that we don't always know exactly why this um, downcast state comes all right I was in Olney four weeks ago Olney is the place John Newton was the pastor And I was there on the 250th anniversary this year of uh, John Newton writing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound Had Saved a Wretch Like Me. And we had a special service there, and a man lectured it, and it was a very happy day. And John Newton had a downcast friend, William Cooper. There's a lovely article about 30 years ago that Ian Murray wrote on Newton and Cooper. So what did he do? Well, he went every day for a walk with Cooper. They had pets. They had pet hares that they loved, and the animals scampered around the house. There was music that they both enjoyed. They read together. And Newton encouraged um, Cooper to write his poetry and express his creativity. Another companion, she would come in the evenings, and she would be engaged in her embroidery. And she was there. He wasn't alone. And they worked in the garden. They produced fruit and, and vegetables. It was marvelously humane and healing and compassionate. So Cooper lived until he was 70 years of age. So I'm saying, oh, be patient. Oh, be patient. When they phone and they say, oh, I'm really down. Can you come along? Can you come now and visit me? I don't think I'm a Christian, you know. And don't be afraid of saying, no, I, I, I'll come tomorrow, our usual time. I'll be with you. You you be wise and caring for them. Let's encourage their children to just be a little more patient with mum and dad, with their melancholy. Let's talk to their family doctor about the condition and see if there can be some help in other way given to them. But the... Um, biblical attitude to depression as I've explained it um, is that it's wrong God is against it God approaches people he comes to this man and he says what are you doing here Elijah so far from where you should be working and laboring not lying down under this juniper tree so disconsolate so suicidal so self destructive in your sorrow and then he comes to Jonah And he speaks to Jonah, and he says, What are you doing, wallowing in self-pity, because the plant has died, and Nineveh has repented? He comes to Cain, and he looks at Cain, and he says to him, Why is your countenance fallen? And he speaks to the psalmist, and he makes the psalmist speak to himself, and to say, Why am I cast down, O my soul? Interrogate. Examine yourself in the light of the mighty promises of God and the mighty blessing that you have as being a child of the King. Now the Puritans believed in the sovereignty of grace, the compassion of our Father who doesn't, Afflict his people needlessly. They worshipped a loving God. They lived under the moral laws expounded in Matthew 5, and Romans 12, Ephesians 5 and 6. Don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Rejoice in the Lord. Always, again I say, rejoice. The Puritans addressed the religious affections. They bowed and they said, Love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self control, what graces. Oh, seek after them. Cry to God daily for, for more grace. Paul learned in whatever state he was in, therewith to be content. He learned it, he didn't pick it up on the road to Damascus. He was an energetic and dynamic personality. But he learned. One day he was in a prayer meeting and uh, an old man said, let's look at Psalm 23 and um, the Lord is my shepherd. I'll not be in want. You know, you may never be in want because you have this loving shepherd. And Paul could see that it was wrong to be discontented. I learned, he said, I learned in whatever state I am to be content. And you can, and you can, and you must. God changes us. He makes us face up to ourselves. There are truths. We've got to believe them. They're given truths. There are affections that we must feed, and if we're going to thrive, we feed on them and grow. We have this everlasting access to a loving Savior who every day whispers your worthless names into the ears of his Father in heaven because he loves you so much. You justify your depression because you were abused as a child. You're abused by a cruel husband, an older man in a position of trust. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, dear, I'm so sorry. Oh, God's kept me from, from that. I'm so sorry that it happened to you. But you're a Christian. God loves you and cares for you. You matter to God. You can talk to him. He reigns in your heart. He is mighty. In doctor Lord Lloyd-Jones' book on spiritual depression, my favorite chapter in that book is called That One Sin. And <laughs> you know, our regrets... And our blame for what happened since is when the devil reminds us. And you wonder, I wonder where she is today. I wonder how she's coping. Is she doing okay? That one sin. Fourthly, some reasons why the Putins thought that depression was wrong. Firstly, they considered it dishonoring to the Lord Jesus. If you are eating the bread of life, you are witness to where you live and to your family is that you are satisfied. You are satisfied. That's your testimony. I'm satisfied with Jesus Christ. And I want everyone to know that. The Christian life is a wonderful life. It's a stable life. It's a contented life. It's a strong life. All our past sins are forgiven sins. There are resources that we have that the world knows nothing about. They know about the drugs. They know about the drink. They know about the relationships. They know about non-stop tr- travel. They know about... Entertainment, but they don't know one who said, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. They know nothing at all about Him. And there are people in our congregations, and oh, we wish they were stronger, and we wish there was a bit of fight about them. <laughs> They could have a peace that passes all understanding and joy unspeakable and full of glory, but they don't have it. And Their family can see they don't have it. Their workmates, their neighbors. And how can I preach from a pulpit that everything is vanity outside of Jesus Christ when there's such long-faced discouragement in people who profess to be church members? They're saying, I, I barely cope. And the first way of deliverance from depression is to say, I am being an appalling advert for Jesus Christ. You know, when we were teenagers, it was not like that. There was a, a, a twinkle in our eyes. And there was a joy. There was a blessedness. And there were the people that impressed us. You know, our first Christian heroes and oh our faces lit up when we saw them they were self integrated and there was a joy and there was a sense of humor and a strength of character about them and oh how we admired them and wanted to be like them if you had been surrounded by depressives Would you be here this afternoon? God's put your feet on a rock. He's put a new song in your mouth. If you are lying under a juniper tree this afternoon, then your song is, Woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. (laughs) What a melody to emanate from the tabernacles of the righteous. What will you say about these years when... You give an account to the Savior. Who will you blame for the juniper tree experience? Secondly, the Puritans thought it was wrong because whatever the crisis, there's always a better reaction. Because you see, depression is always a reactive condition. It's not a tendency within. It's a reaction. When we are under Stress. You, you can choose, okay, this is my avenue of depression I'm going to walk in for a while. It's a selfish reaction. It's a withdrawing reaction. It is always a reaction to circumstances in our lives. And there's always a better way. Depression is a possibility. But you have to address it. Like you, Talk to yourself, the psalmist says. Why? Why are you cast down? Why am I depressed? Get out of my life. Get out of my house. Get out of my fellowship. We have to talk to it. Why? For every possibility of depression, there's always a better way. There's the possibility of our own sin. Let me paint the gloomiest picture then. I, a converted man, I know from day to day I am the most calamitous moral and spiritual failure. I fail as a father, I fail as a husband, I fail as a grandfather, I fail as a friend, I fail as a church member, I fail as a pastor preacher, I fail in leading the church, I fail in my pastoral advice, I fail in my testimony on my street. I fail in my personal devotional life. I fail in every relationship and every single level of my life. And at the close of every day, there's nothing I'm proud of. As I look back through the day. And I I say, when I get back to London now, next week, I say, what a shambles. (laughs) It's all been... (laughs) How irrelevant my life is. The best I've done is mixed with selfishness and plagiarism and shortcuts <laughs> and ego. And I can look back at the end of a day and I can work myself up into an enormous depression. Lord, take away my life. And in spite of myself, fall into depression. There is always a better way, a better possibility than finding a juniper tree and lying down under it. I can go to the throne of grace and I can speak to the king there. The king of love sits on it and he smiles and smiles forever when he sees me coming there. And you know what happens you know, what happens, you know what's happened in some of your minds when I've said that? And you were thinking, oh, yes, but you have to ask and ask and ask and ask and ask and ask, and ask with immense sincerity and passion and transparent, self-denying longing. I don't know I sometimes think we've attached far too much importance to the length and fervency of our prayers the perspective should not be on how I prayed, but oh this one smiling at me my dear Savior my loving Father there when as a child we go to our parents and we want something to eat some elementary thing our father doesn't give it to us because he thinks our eloquence and the length of time we've spent in asking him and asking him has finally persuaded him he's making a piece of toast for us (laughs) he gives it to us because he is Our Father. I'm his son. And at the end of the day, you know, we can get into bed and we pull the blanket over us and we say, sorry, Lord. Sorry about today. Sorry I hurt the people who love me the most. Sorry. Sorry, Lord. Sorry about the failures. Forgive me. Help me better tomorrow. Cover today. And if I believe in grace, if I take the New Testament seriously, if I believe where sin abounds, grace much more abounds, then I must believe that simple prayer. Sorry about today, Lord. It avails with God. But his answer is exceeding abundantly above all that I ask or even think. And that has been my experience for decades. And then, you know, another voice comes and the voice says, Ah, oh, but just you wait. You're going to get your comeuppance, aren't you? I won't listen to that voice. I hear a gentle voice the sweetest voice, the loveliest voice. Come to me. Come come on. Come to me now. I'll give you rest. If all Los Angeles comes, I can cope. I can give everyone the vilest offender. I can give him rest. I can't. His superabundant love Jesus Christ is the great scapegoat. and we see him, we see him. He's going up a hill, and then he's gone out of sight, and then he's up another hill further away, and, and he's gone, and then we see a dart, and he's gone. He's gone forever. He's taken all my guilt, all my condemnation. He's gone, He's gone with it. He remembers it no more. Why am I a marine archaeologist and putting my diving kit on and going down into the depths of the sea and looking for those sins that he has cast there? Come on. (laughs) They are all forgiven sins. Come on, Christian. What are you doing? Go to the cross. Where did the burden fall off Bunyan's back is when he saw our Savior, loving Him, giving His life that we might be pardoned. Every one of our imaginations, every one of the sins of omission, He's taken away. There's always a way back to God from the dark paths of sin, always there's a way, this way from where you are. This afternoon, there's a way back for you to this living, loving Savior. Jesus Christ. Thirdly, he says depression is also also caused by sin. You know, the people we've hurt, and we think about them, and we lost track of them, the blemishes in our career, the gaps in our knowledge, the particular weakness and vulnerability we have to certain Lusts of the mind and lusts of the flesh, the missed opportunities, the cowardice when they were ready and, and and we weren't ready to speak. And I'm preaching to others. I have the audacity to stand before you all and tell you how to deal with sin and how to deal with your depression when I battle myself and not always victoriously. I must do with my sin what God has done with my past and, and forget the things that are behind. I can't make atonement for them. I can't make restitution for them. I can't make divine propitiation for them. I can't pay the penalty for them. I can do nothing that is commensurate for their sinfulness that will wash my sin away. I can't. There's nothing I can do. That's why I have a Savior. Because he'll do all of that. Everything. He'll omit nothing. They're under the blood. You know, I'm 84 now, and I can remember sins I did when I was 18. I shudder. Now I'm an 84 retired pastor. and I'm putting myself in that awful, guilty, embarrassing situation of how I as an 18-year-old behaved. That imposes an intolerable burden. And I have to do what I'm telling you to do. There's a place where sins are washed away. There is a place where night is turned to day. Burdens are lifted, blind eyes made to see. There's a wonder-working power in the blood of Calvary. Oh, I must go there. How precious is that flow that makes us white as snow. All my present sins, all my past sins, all my future sins... A pardon. There's no condemnation. There's no slight frown. There's no pursing of the lips as he looks at me. No shrinking of the eyes. No quiet shaking of the head or tut-tut. Or any reluctance whatsoever to forgive me for Jesus' sake. He looks at his dear son, and he pardons me. And grace is as simple as that. Or take the fact of our pastoring, our keeping the Christian walk in days when there's a lot of pressure. It's, I, my friends, it's, it's tough being a Christian. Taking up your cross and denying yourself. Loving God with all your heart. They're watching us. I think of the men on the diaconates I've passed, pastored, and they work early in the morning, late at night. They're in the prayer meeting. They care for their wives and children as best they can. Wonderful they don't give in to depression. They don't search for where's the nearest juniper tree? Where can I have a nervous breakdown, pastor? I can let the whole thing crush me. Oh, I can talk to the Lord. I've got a close friend and I share my life with him. And... He lifts my burden. Here is grace that's sufficient. Sufficient for now. Sufficient for this afternoon. Sufficient for the devil's fiery darts that now you know. He'll help you. He'll carry you through. I'm a man in whom Jesus Christ lives. Oh, let me say that to myself again and again. In this book where William Bridge goes through all these headings, a lifting up in the case of discouragement, great sins, weak grace, miscarriage of duties, assurance, temptation, desertion, affliction, unsilvableness. Those are eight chapter headings. And then the cure of discouragement, is by faith in Jesus Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can cross any river. I can climb any mountain. I can overcome any trial. I can endure any temptation. I can do it through, through him who loves me and is determined to take me to be with himself. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He loves those that trust in him. Do you know a Christian can ascend with wings as an eagle? A Christian can. Not a special Christian, not the second blessing Christian, a mere Christian. He can run and not be weary. He can walk and not faint. And you can. You can. God can deliver you again and again from depression. May God bless us all. Amen. Amen.